Welcome to this episode of Blended, Blessed, and Always a Mess. I'm Eric. And I'm Angie. We are married with a ton of kids. We have six kids total. He has three and I have three. My name's Hallie and I love riding horses. I'm Lexi and I love agriculture. My name's Carter and I love eating. My name's Chase and I love lifting weights. My name's Summer and I love spending my parents' money. I'm Dane and I love baseball. Our show is about our blended, blessed, and always a mess life. And our hope is if you find yourself in the same situation we are in, that by sharing our story, all the fun, and all the mess, challenges we are experiencing, it will give you some inspirations, laughs, and community, knowing you are not alone in this mess. We appreciate you spending time with us. Let's dive in. Welcome to this week's episode of Blended Blessed and Always a Mess. We are super excited this week because it feels like we're going to a new level. We are bringing an actual counselor, someone that might actually be able to help you, not just Angie and I giving you what works for us and what doesn't work, someone that sees it every day. And so Lynn Roush is a LPC native of Chicago, grew up attending the Moody Church uh, as a pastor's kid. And we've referenced Lynn's blogs several months ago in our podcasts because we have found them to be very helpful. And so we We'll post the blogs again, or, or at least the link to the church website so that you can find them. So Lynn decided after high school that she was going to study psychology and philosophy at Taylor University. And then she pursued an MA in counseling psychology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where her coursework, say that five times fast, where her coursework included biblical and theological studies in addition to psychological and clinical training. It's where she met her husband, Shay Roush. They married in 1997. I've known Shay now for 13, 14 years. I first met Lynn. And and after spending several years raising their three children, Lynn started professional counseling ministry at The Crossing, where Angie and I attend. Back in 2006, she started that. But I think what's really important is her passion is to help people understand generational cycles of dysfunction. That could keep us here for weeks, uh, years. years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and work with clients to break destructive patterns in marriages and families. That's the biggest intro we've ever given, but I feel like it's important to say all of those things. And Angie and I are super excited to have you, Lynn. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, you guys. I'm so happy to be here with you. Where should we start? I mean, this could go for a really long time. Lynn sent us a bunch of topics and questions that got Angie and I immediately going, we probably should have met with Lynn before we even blended this family. And I think that we have people that are listening that are considering blending family, people that are already in it. And we have traditional families that are also listening Mm -hmm. that keep saying, hey, I'm finding out things here. And when you're breaking generational cycles, I can see where everybody could use it. So Mm -hmm. let you start, honey. Oh, gosh. There's so many things I want to ask. Okay. (laughs) So my first question is, when does it get easier when you're blending families? (laughs) Wow, that's a great question. Um, And thanks again, you guys, for having me. I know you personally, but it's fun to just be in this setting and talking about these things. And I just want to tell you guys, first of all, how much I admire you because you guys are opening up a dialogue that I think families, couples really need to have. And in doing so, you're already breaking those generational cycles. So kudos to you guys for digging in and asking hard questions. Um, and thanks for having me be a part of it. Tear me up a little bit. Thank you. <laughs> really? Very kind. Yeah. Super oh, sweet. No, that truly comes from the bottom of my heart. So I, I absolutely mean that. I will say that um, what often happens when couples enter remarriage is there's this ideal expectation, right? They've they've been through the pain of divorce. They're looking for comfort. They're looking for companionship. They think I finally found a partner that gets me um, and is going to ease the pain of what I've been through. And yet what the research shows is that for a 
a couple getting remarried, that the level of stress that they experience um, remains high for at least five to seven years before it ever reaches that of a, quote, normal or just first-time married couple. <laughs> so we got a couple years to go. Yeah, how many years are you guys into this at this See, point? See, now... I lost track. <laughs> we are about... I don't know, three. We've, oh, okay. we've been together three years, roughly, but I would say truly blending probably two. Two to two and a half. But had someone told me that when we first started, <laughs> yeah, well, like, hey, you're in it for the long haul. It's going to be about five to seven years before it gets better. I would have been like, holy Crap. <laughs> Is that because the kids are leaving after five to seven yeah, years? Yeah, right, right. Right. Kick everybody out. <laughs> no, um, and that's and that's really good. And and I say that not to discourage people, but to normalize people. So if you are in that situation and you are looking at other couples and thinking, wow, they don't have the juggling act that we have and they don't have these external stressors like we have. That is just simply because the nature of working on blending a family is exponentially more difficult. And the other issue to consider is that the parent-child bond that you have predates this new relationship mm-hmm. that you're in. And and what that essentially means is that the this new coupling, this new marriage is the most vulnerable relationship in the whole home. So just because you fall in love and you think, oh, this person and I, I finally found someone I'm compatible with, that coupling process is actually separate from the familying process of bringing an entire family together. And if you don't know that going in, you might be very surprised and you might be asking yourself, why isn't it easier yet? And the reality is, is because the nature of it does not lend itself to being easy. There's a sea of opposition that comes when you're trying to bring people from different backgrounds and different you know, lifestyles and parenting styles. And also just every member of the family adjusting to what this new family dynamic is going to be. I feel like every, especially for the kids, everyone trying to figure out what, what's my place in this new family. Yes. What's my role supposed to be? Yes. And they're already, a lot of the times, ours going through teenage years where the hormonal things are all over the place anyway. And so now it's like, oh, but I have to find a new place in this family when when it might have just been Angie and the three kids or me and the three kids. They knew what their place was. Right. And now we're redoing everything. Right. Well, the other thing is, and, and I'm sure people have shared this too, but I feel like it ebbs and flows too. I feel like when we first started dating, it's like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. This is my person, right? And then again, like to your point, then you're like, that's that's where I want, like, that's where I want to go. That's a relationship that I want. Everything's working great. Mm-hmm. Then you you do start blending the family. And then you're like heads down focused on the kids and how do you bring them together? And then I know we've we've had ups and downs too, where it's like we're good now. We're focusing on the kids. Oh gosh, mm-hmm. our relationship struggling because we haven't paid attention to that. And I that for me is such a balancing act mm-hmm. to try to focus on your relationship yeah. as husband and wife, new husband and wife, but then also. Right. How, how do we put these that's kids? What, yeah. and, that's, and so sometimes it's like, oh, this is, it's going great. And then it's like, whoa, we just took two steps backwards. Right, right. And again, I think you're saying it very well. That's a very normal experience. And I've heard it said that um, for a remarried couple, sometimes the honeymoon comes at the end. 
instead of the beginning, just because oh, that makes sense. They're so so when they're gone. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Again, Eric, you're yeah. really anxious yeah. to get the kids out of the house. I, I hear that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just <laughs> hearing it at the end. Okay. Right. Well, because again, you're out of the gate. The setup of the relationship is immediately more complex. It is more complicated by the fact that you already have bonds with your children. And nobody wants those bonds to disintegrate or, or, you know, become dysfunctional in any way. So you're trying to maintain those bonds with your children. And yet you're trying to create a new bond, maybe with a new child in the family. And so inherently that could create jealousy and conflict and confusion as to, like you said, what everybody's role in the family may be. Yeah. And I think we, we kind of looking through some of the things that you had sent us ahead of time. One of the things that I think we have seen, we try to discuss a lot is, you know, we want it to be very positive for all the kids with, with their other families, right? Cause it's always easier if everybody gets along and everyone's doing those things, but inherently the children still feel sometimes a, a guilt that, oh, I'm having feelings for this new bonus parent, right. or I need to really stick up for my other parent in the family because I want to make sure that, that there's a clear line of delineation or whatever that might be. And so we, when we talk to other families, we've seen it in cases even in our own home where it's like it's just a very fine line of a child is really torn sometimes growing these feelings for a new parent while still yeah. feeling okay with their real parent. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And I'll speak to that uh, again, kind of more from a psychological perspective. And that is. It's, You're the brains. That's what we brought brains. you in. I'm the brains. <laughs> We're just sharing what's happening. You're the yeah, brains. Yeah. No, no, thank you. But is really, it all starts with attachment. Okay. So attachment is a, a psychological word, but you could also think of just the word trust or bonding. Okay. So the parent-child bond is what the child depends on from birth, right? Because when you're born, you can't meet any of your own needs. You're completely dependent on your parent to step in and meet your emotional, your physical, um, your mental, you know, all those developmental needs. And so that attachment is going to create a bond between a parent and a child. And it is in a child's nature to be loyal to their parent because the threat of that attachment going away is absolutely terrifying because that is their, your source of everything, your source of security, your source of identity, your source of getting those needs met. And so when divorce happens in a family, what it creates for a child is what I would call a double bind. And a double bind is simply where um, a person is put in a situation where no matter which choice they make, there's going to be a negative outcome. So if it's like a lose-lose situation, right? So to your point, if I'm happy to be around my bonus dad, then that inherently means I might be making someone else upset or vice versa. We yes. just talked uh-huh. to David Rowe last week, and, uh-huh. and you know David, uh, yes. and he comes from a blood family. He's in, I'm in my 40s, and I still worry about right. you know upsetting one parent and the other parent. And he's like, I have a great relationship with my mom, my bonus mom, my dad, my bonus dad. Mm-hmm. And I still in my forties worry that I'm upsetting someone when I make a decision. Yep. Yeah. And that's the nature of a double bind. And it really is sort of impossible to erase that. But I do think that some of the things we're going to talk about today, things for parents to keep in mind, strategies that they may be able to use with their children can help buffer that is what I would say. You cannot eliminate the double, the nature of the double bind, but you can certainly ameliorate 
the effects that that does because essentially what that double bind is doing is it's creating dissonance inside a child, right? There's like a an inner conflict like to, you know, David, even though he's a, an adult, right? He has this inner conflict of, you know, if I spend time with one family, is that going to reflect poorly and someone else be upset with me? So what what parents need to understand in this situation is that their child is experiencing and every child is different, but to some degree, some inner distress and anxiety, probably almost all the time because of the double bind that they're in. And that is just, you know, part of the nature of this, but it's something to be so aware of because once you're aware that it's there, now you want to observe your child's behavior. You want to tune in to the little comments that they make. You want to notice even just by changes in their facial expression and how they you know enter the room like hey is is something bothering you do you have something on your mind and a lot of times kids feel like well i don't want to make it worse for mom and dad so i don't want to say anything mm-hmm. but what we know is that when we're with, when we have negative or distressing emotions when we're alone with those feelings, it makes them exponentially worse. They kind of take on a life of their own. So if we don't give those pathways for our kids to really open up and share about how yucky this whole thing makes them feel, then they're going to be alone with those feelings. And then that's going to just, that can mushroom and make things even worse. Angie says a lot, whether she's saying to me or the kids, like, well, what is the story you're telling yourself right now? Because that's, mm-hmm. I mean, really, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, we, yeah. you, you know, in your head, now we're not sharing. Now the story we're telling ourselves is getting exponentially worse right. when really it may not be everything right. that we're making it out to be. Yeah. So how, how do you create that space to where they do openly mm-hmm. share and can talk about it? Because, I mean, I think that's, a, to your point, a struggle with all kids. I see it with my kids, too. Mm-hmm. When you do know something's bothering them yeah. and it's like, I'm fine. I'm fine, Mom. Yeah. You know, so what are those th- key things that parents can can kind of start implementing to eliminate some of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, again, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about attachment and secure attachment. So through a lot of the things that we're doing with our kids, we're communicating, you know what, my love for you isn't going to change. You know, that there's really nothing you can do that's going to make me love you more or love you less. But I think the emotional relationship with the child depends so much on that attunement. We're kind of like a radio dial that you're turning very finely to tune into those, you know, emotional radio waves, so to speak, that your child is sending out. That that takes time, that takes practice, but it also takes the ability to set your own thoughts and feelings aside. And I think one of the hardest things for any parent to do, you know, no matter what, is to suspend their own thoughts and feelings to allow space for the child to have their own thoughts and feelings. I'm guilty of this all the time. Like, I'm like, I don't want to hear it because I'm right, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, you know my kids, right? So it's like, God bless them. They're probably like, you know. Yeah, it is, it is so hard because, and, I, and here's what I just know for myself and I think parents in general, is that's because we're scared mm-hmm. about what they might say. Like, yeah. I'm scared if I open that door truly, not just like, oh, what's on your mind, but truly slow down, pay attention, and ask that question. Like, how is my behavior impacting you? 
how is this situation impacting you? And not project your own feelings onto them, but truly listen is one of the most difficult things that a parent can do, especially when you may feel a measure of guilt or culpability Mm -hmm. that, hey, I might have been the one to cause this pain on some level. It's like, we don't want to hear that. That's going to really hurt. Gosh, it's so true. And I do think as parents, especially, you know, being divorced and starting a new sort of home, I feel like a big fear is they're not going to want to be here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're going to want to go to the other parent's house type Mm -hmm. of thing. And I, I feel that with are even the other parents, right? I feel like, so you have this whole group of these of parents that all have that same fear yeah. of like, what if I don't have the cool house or the fun house, or maybe they're not getting along with their stepbrother and they don't like being here. Mm-hmm. To your point, I think when you know something's bothering your kids and you ask them, that's a fear that if you really dig deep, they're yeah. not happy. And that yeah, I mean, we're all we are all responsible for a divorce. It takes two, right? Mm-hmm. So there is, I will mm-hmm. tell you, I mean, there's a ton of guilt of yeah. divorce and kids having to go through that, and you do mm-hmm. feel like I, I caused this. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is why they're having a struggle. So here's the counterintuitive angle of all of this, though. It's not that pain that's going to hurt your child. Emotional pain is not necessarily going to damage your child. What damages your child is having no space to talk about it. Yeah. Gosh, that's really so good. And true. no way to process it. So, and but again, so it's counterintuitive in that by opening that door that feels really scary, that's actually what's going to want them to stay because that's where the attachment and the attunement and the connection is going to pay off big time. But we have to get over our own fears of what might their answer be. And I will tell you, I've met with many people. I've, I've worked with many people who are adult children of divorce as they process these things. And, and I'll ask them sometimes, did either of your parents ever just sit down with you and look you in the eye and say, how has this divorce impacted you? And really wanted a, an honest answer. And I'll tell you, it's rare that I would have a client say, yeah, I've I've had that conversation with my mom or with my dad. And I just think, you know, and and one one woman in particular said, "If, if one of my parents actually sat me down and asked that question, she said, first of all, I think I'd pass out because I'd be so (laughs) like, like completely shocked that they would ask that. Secondly, she said, I wouldn't even know what to say or where to begin because there's just so much there. But then the third thing she said was, as she kind of sat with that for a minute, she said, honestly, I don't even know that I would need to say all the things. Just them asking me that question would mean so much. So just asking the question can open your child's heart in a way that maybe it's not been open before. Yeah. And I I mean, hearing you say that, it's so scary, right? Even like, oh, gosh, I mean, I'm a pretty open person. Don't mind us. But it's like, oh, you want me to ask that? and feel the hurt that I've caused my yeah. kids in certain ways. But I see what you're saying. Like they don't even have to answer. Some may, some may not, mm-hmm. uh, but it's going to give an op- another opportunity for them to grow in trust of, okay, yes. dad or mom recognizes yes. that there's a, a pain point Absolutely. and they're not ignoring it. They're right. not just shining right. over it and making it no yeah. denial here, but yeah. Wow. That's interesting. And yeah. 
kind of scary all at once. Like, oh, probably should address at some point. Well, and I would say, like, early on when I got, right after I got divorced, I would say, in my mind, I wouldn't want to ask that question because you just don't want them to relive painful. You know, so I think a lot of people probably think that, too, of like, Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want to stir it up. Let's just like right. go have fun and let's just right. make great memories. You know what I mean? Versus really digging deep. I mean, I've gotten that feedback from Hallie, my oldest, mm-hmm. but she was like 12, 13. And we just, just kept on rolling through life, not really sitting, yeah. sitting in the right. pain. And here's the reality. Until you can touch that hurt that, that they experience, it, it doesn't go away. Right. So the denial, you know, it sort of encapsulates you for a bit, mm-hmm. like it buffers you for a bit. But it, it doesn't if we try to split it off and cut it off, it's it's going to work itself out in mm-hmm. other ways. Those feelings are going to come out in other ways. And so be the parent is, is what I would encourage, you know, as we're talking um, to your listeners, be the parent that is worthy of your child's trust, worthy of what is in their heart and the tender innocence that may have been, you know, hurt or broken or shattered. If you can be the parent that can hear that and sit with that as hard as that may be for you, then you're building a pathway for your child to know experientially what it means for me to trust my heart to another person, even if it's been wounded. And that's where the breaking of the cycle occurs. Because if they never relearn that or have that repaired, I think one of the questions you wanted to, you know, address here is what is one of the biggest, you know, fallouts, you know, from divorce and a child? And and my answer would be is broken trust and that that broken sense of security. So then the question is how do we rebuild those pathways in the brain for that child to realize, no, I, I can try, I can have emotional closeness with another person. And that is the job of the parent to be that safe person, that trustworthy person for them to open up to. We've, we've said, like, we wonder what will happen with, with uh, our kids' relationships moving forward because we, you know, neither Angie nor myself come from a divorced home. Mm -hmm. Parents were married. So this is new for us. This is new for our kids. What does that mean for them then when they go into a relationship? But it sounds like what you're saying is if we're able to address the trust issues, that's going to go a long way in what happens in their relationships moving forward. Am I hearing that right? That's my assertion because um, trust is absolutely core and central to any healthy relationship. You cannot have a healthy relationship without trust, right? Fair. Yeah, for I mean, sure. And here's the thing about trust. Trust is very fragile and it is easily broken. It doesn't take much to shatter trust, but it takes a lot of effort to build trust, to hold on to trust, to maintain trust in a relationship. So it's not impossible to rebuild, but you know, anytime we move from something that's broken to try to make it whole again, takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy. It is so much easier to stay in that broken place because it's familiar and we want like homeostasis. But if we're going to move towards health and wholeness and rebuilding, it's going to take time. It's going to take energy. It's going to take being uncomfortable to rebuild Mm -hmm. that. The picture in my mind I'm getting as you describe trust and how easy it is to break and how hard it is to build 
is the the scene from a Christmas story with the electric leg lamp. Oh yeah. And she breaks it and he tries to put it back together. Right, and right. it's so many little pieces and he spends Super all this time and then it immediately breaks back again. Because it's so hard once you've broken what that looks like, it is yeah. so hard to put it back together. It looked like he could put it back together, but then it was even more fragile and it just broke again. And that's really part of build, rebuilding trust is as you're doing it, it can easily break again. Because it's so hard to repair. Yes, it is hard to repair. However, what we do understand from the research and how uh, relationships function and our need for emotional connection is that relational rupture is normal, right? That happens in every relationship. What is not always normal and common is the repair. Usually we just let that rupture go and we don't really address it. We don't really make the effort to fix it. So when rupture happens and then we work to repair it, that bond can actually be stronger with your child. So whereas you're saying like, oh, I feel so much guilt and Mm -hmm. oh, it's, you know, so awful, so terrible. If you can work to repair, that bond can actually be stronger because now the child knows, man, even in like the worst of situations, my mom or my dad showed up and they were willing to engage with me and have those hard conversations. So again, I want to move people forward and encourage them that that process of rupture and repair can actually form a deeper bond with your child. So we really, you know, like in the parenting class we teach, we really talk about there is no perfect parent and you just have to be a good enough parent. And if you can do some basic things consistently over the long haul then chances are you're going to have a relatively, you know, emotionally adjusted child. And I would say that's true, whether it's, you know, in a blended family or not. We all, I think we all at some point, whether you've gone through a divorce or not, you lose trust with your kids. Like something happens, right, to break the trust. What's like that number one thing for a parent to do to start rebuilding trust? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm looking for the easy pill. I know. It's like, well... <laughs> What's it's, the magic pill, Lynn? Yeah, Where's could the, you, could the you, weight loss pill that everybody's searching for? The fountain of youth? Uh, what's that pill? And maybe it's not even with kids. I mean, it could be relationships. It could be between a step-parent, you know, yeah. step-parent, step-kid type of thing. Right, right. I would say, I, you know, I don't know if this is going to give you what you're looking for here, but I would say the at the core, what trust is built on is the idea that the other person gets, and I'm using air quotes and you can't see me, but I'm like, that they get the impact that they have on you. If someone doesn't get the impact that they have on you, you really can't trust them, right? Like Hmm. if they don't get it. So again, it goes back to opening that door of, you know, hey, how do you, how did you experience me in that? Does that, did what I say or how you reacted make you want to move closer to me or did it push you away? You know, because until I get it, why is anybody going to trust me? Because I'm like, because what's going to happen? I'm going to do it again. I'm going to hurt you again. So it it really is, again, back to that um, communication of, hey, I want to get the impact that I have on you. And So much of that, I think, in parenting is we have to be willing, and this is so, so hard, like I'm squeezing my brain right now because it's just, it's hard for everyone, but is to really engage with your child on the level of, I want to be able to take your perspective. 
I want to be able to set my perspective aside and enter into what is it like to be you? What is it like to be a child in this family? What is it like to, to have me as your mother? What is it like to have the siblings that you have? What is it like? Because if I'm not willing to kind of get in there and figure out what is it like to be you, I'm not going to get you on a deep level. You're not going to trust me on a deep level. And we're just going to kind of continue on in whatever the pattern is. And that's just going to repeat itself many times over. It's getting deep in here. Oh, no. getting scary. Ah, so in that, I'm going to get really tactical here. But like in the discussion with your kid, when you're asking mm-hmm. them those particular questions, you, I, assume, I assume you're more listening to what they're saying. Because mm-hmm. I also think in just life in general, we are always listening to formulate a response, like to right. say, oh, but here, and I'm, I am so guilty of like mm-hmm. positive vibes, right? So if someone mm-hmm. shares, you know, a concern or, you know, then it's like you try to you fix it, fix it, right? Yeah. That's, that's how I'm wired. So it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, then here's all the positives. So mm-hmm. does that negate the child sharing, this is my experience when you're trying to share, then you turn around and share a positive with them? Or is it more just listening to understand versus to respond? Yeah, I think you kind of answered your own question there. Um, <laughs> I, I think I do know the yes, answer. Dang it. <laughs> you do know the answer. It's I'd just rather really, do positive really vibes. <laughs> hard. Um, yeah, were you going to say reminds me, well, It reminds me, we, we had a sermon earlier this summer at church about how it's okay to be sad. It's okay to sit in the mm-hmm. sadness. We don't have to fix, you know, a lot of times it's actually worse when you, you have the, well, but I'm going to fix it right. attitude. Here's why you shouldn't be feeling this way. Here's why you shouldn't. You, know, you have Jesus. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Rather than it's sometimes it's okay to sit in the sadness with our kids to let them go through yeah. that emotional. But we struggle with that, right? Because we don't want them to be sad. Right. So at that point, it's like for the parents, we have yeah. to learn to be be there, but yes. sit with them in the... Absolutely. And that thank you for that segue, because here's what I will also say. There is so much loss that occurs when a family goes through a divorce. And so every member of the family is experiencing loss on some level. And loss is not just a one-time event. Loss is like, you know, an earthquake that happens. And then there's these ripple, these after effects that show up, right? With your friend, David, you know, 40 years later that he's, Mm -hmm. or, you know, just even as a child projects into the future, like, okay, what is uh, a graduation going to look like? What is a wedding going to look like? Who's going to walk me down the aisle when we have grandchildren? What is that? So there's, again, there's just this aftershock um, that you have to deal with. And so the way I describe grief to my clients is like, two rivers that are coming together and they're merging at a certain point where there's all this turbulence and one of those rivers is sadness and the other river is anger. Okay. And the river of sadness is essentially, I've lost something that I can never get back. Right. And, and you feel the hurt behind that. You feel the weight of that. But the anger piece is a protest that says, this is not how this should be. Something is wrong here. This isn't how life was designed to go, right? We've moved against the grain and that hurts. So when we're grieving, we're essentially letting ourselves feel sadness and anger, which I think are two of the most tricky feelings that nobody 
ever really wants to feel. We brush over it. We bury it. We fix it. We skip Mm -hmm. over it. We, you know, but if we can give space to ourselves and to our kids to name how sad they are that, you know, that, that family that I really longed for is never going to be. And to be able to put words to that and for a parent to hear that and feel mm-hmm. that with them and go, I, I get that, that hurt, that hurts me too. I long for that too. And, and I, I so wish that that could have happened. So there's, there's the sadness, but then allowing the anger, the natural, you know, God, you know, allows those feelings of anger, not allows, but he created us to feel that anger is a, um, Anger helps us put boundaries around things and to protect what's good and to protest what's bad. So anger is such a critical emotion for us to be able to name and understand and experience and identify because without it, we're kind of boundaryless, right? It's just things are going in, things are going out. We don't know what's good. We don't know what's bad. And so for an anger to say, I'm, you know, for a child to say, I'm really angry about this is actually such a, an important part of grieving and healing. But again, I mean, what parent wants to sit and hear their child's anger? That feels very scary. You know, mm-hmm. we get defensive. We want to fix it. We want to go, but you shouldn't feel that way because look at all the good things that are going on in your life over here. Like we just don't want to deal with it. We live in Missouri. We have people listen to the podcast all over the country. In Missouri, you do you would take float trips and and Lynn and Angie and I have all been on a float trip. This 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 river of sadness with anger does not seem like a river I want to float. All right. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> Seems like one you're gonna tip everything yeah, over, you're gonna over. spill. Yeah. But you do I get exactly what you're saying. Yes. It's it's and the anger part is so important, right? Because until mm-hmm. it, it, it feels like to me always like until you get the anger out. Mm-hmm. You can't actually yeah. then rebuild. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Or I mean, it just feels like there's a certain amount of anger that's got to be released. Yeah, I think it's anger, like I said, is a natural response to we live in a broken world where life does not go the way God designed it to go because it's infected with this sin virus and, and that taints absolutely everything. And so anger is going to be a natural um, response to that. But the great thing is, is that if we can grieve losses, like the loss of that ideal family that we thought we were going to have, the loss of maybe more control over our kids, because now they're maybe with this other person half the time and I don't see them and I don't know what's going on. If we can grieve those losses, we will be able to move forward. We're not going to be stuck, or it, it, but it doesn't feel good, but we're going to be able to move forward. And so with grief comes growth. So we, we need to grieve. It's healthy to do that. In fact, that is God's prescribed way for us to live in a broken world is to grieve, to lament, to name the things that aren't going right, to name the hurt that comes with that, to identify the unmet longings, the, the unmet needs, the, the, the hopes and dreams that maybe were shattered against, you know, the rock of reality. He invites us to bring those questions and those concerns. And I, and I, you know, speaking of just the spiritual aspect of things as well, is that only God can be God for our kids. You know, we, we can't be God for our kids. We, we try, right? We, we want to ma- manage and control and protect and all the things. 
But this is really an opportunity for a child to bring their heart to the Lord, right? And to receive from him what we as parents cannot, humanly speaking, give to them. So there's opportunities all the way around for trusting God um, in those situations. So many really good things that you've said there from, you know, you have to grieve to have growth, uh, opportunities for our kids to grow in their relationship with Christ. And it's really, I mean, for me, it's it feels... This is it's there's some scary things we're talking about, but also really motivational and inspirational things. Yeah, I, you just yeah, I was getting a little teary eyed when you're talking because you're talking about grief. You know, we talk about the kids a lot, but I would say like as a mom, anytime my kids are not here, I mean, it sucks. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's also like a grieving process, too. It's like there's mm-hmm. there's a hole. I tell my kids all the time. I don't know if I should say that to them or not, because mm-hmm. then I'm like, does that make them feel bad? But it's like. I, I always want you here. Like, that's hard for me to Absolutely. not have you guys. Yeah. So that's yeah. also, yeah. And that's <laughs> important to grieve. And it's important to, to name that. And I appreciate you saying that because I can yeah. imagine. Yeah. And she doesn't cry. When she cries, it's like <laughs> yeah. a weird, it's a big ordeal. Well, tears are healing. Yeah. So let the well. tears come. I, but this is, this is such an important point, and this is why you're doing this, right? Because you want your listeners to hear, and, and they are hearing, that you've lost time with your kids that you can never get back. And that feels so hard. Because your mother's heart, right? Because you're such a good mother. Your mother's heart is where you naturally want your kids to be near you. And that is a God-given beautiful desire that that you have for them. And so to be able to say that out loud, I think moves you to a place of just naming maybe losses that you need to name in order to keep moving forward. And I would say it does not get easier either. I'm sure it doesn't. (laughs) I mean, it's been six years. Yeah. This is where we sit with you in your sadness, honey. This is where we, (laughs) we sit in the grief and we let it go. No, this, in a positive is, way. this is it. This is it right here. And I, and I wish people could see like just the, you know, the tenderness, you know, in your soul here and you being vulnerable with me. And I really, really appreciate that. And again, that's why I admire you because it's in the not talking about it mm-hmm. that you feel alone and that you, you question everything and that, you know, your brain probably goes you know, every which direction. And so I, I just want to normalize you that those are, those are feelings that I think a lot of people are experiencing in your situation. We, this is a great conversation. We are uh, way over on time, but I think we, Angie and I kind of knew going into this, this is going to be probably our first ever to be continued episode because (laughs) we still have a lot of topics to cover with Lynn. And now that Angie's, uh, and I need to regroup and we need in here. Now that Angie's got to regroup, we also have to figure out how much we owe Lynn for this session, apparently. So this is, that's where we're, that's where we're at. So, um, we appreciate all of you listening today and we can tell you right now that next week, will be part two of our interview with Lynn Rausch. So thank you. Have a wonderful week and God bless. Thank you for listening to Blended Blessed and Always a Mess. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at blendedblessedalwaysamess.com. Reach out to us on any of our social channels. We would love to hear from you. Have a great week.